Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of another great conversation. We seem to be having incredible conversations as I come across very, very interesting people and ask if they would wish to come and have a conversation for all of us to learn more uh, about their work and what they've learned along their journey. So today we have Beth, and I have just catched up on her uh, bio today and read through her website and she definitely has a wealth of experience within these circles so hello Beth and thank you for agreeing to this conversation hello Jeremy thank you for having me I'm happy to be here no problem so could you just start by giving us a very brief and this always is quite difficult for people to answer mm -hmm. because um to be brief when you've got such a wealth of knowledge as I know you have is is challenged but could you just be brief and just explain a little bit about you um your work and your history yes um I spent 25 years I retired last June working for a county probation department here in the states and I spent about 25 years um, with the department, mainly in the sex crimes division, sex offender division. So I supervised sex offenders that were on probation. I also, um, for the last 14 years of my career, managed a unit of officers. So I was in management there and they supervised people on probation for sex offenses. I've developed trainings um, for supervision. I've been um, trained on a variety of different risk assessments related to sex offender management. Um, I retired last June to go into consulting. So now I consult on a variety of different sex cases, sex issues. I also provide trainings related to sex offender risk management and inform families and people impacted by the justice system, um, impacted by sex crimes. So kind of in a nutshell, that's what I'm doing now is consulting on sex cases and providing trainings. Okay, and that's an incredible career, by the way. Um, so let's start with the, the 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 big topic that I keep trying my best to bring to my platforms with um, with kickback every time from a large number uh, percentage of my audience, which is um, the discussion around sex offenders, people who have either commit the crime already or have the thought of their crime the crime in their head i'm going to ask you a massive question to start with and that is why do you think we're so angry at this conversation that we can't have it in a what i want to say mature way it's just pure anger and and such a rash why do you think we can't have a a conversation around this topic Jeremy, I think it is so emotional. Um, it is such an emotional topic. And I think it's also a topic that um, so many people don't understand, but we have a lot of just preconceived notions, right? About sex offenses and sex offenders. And if you commit a sex crime, um, you are the worst person. You should be locked away forever. But in reality, um, each sex offender, each sex case is so differently different. And and but the one thing they do have in common um, with each other is a victim was created, mm. right? A victim was created. They hurt someone, and and there should definitely be amends uh, to that person. How does that work? How does how does um, how do we do that? Um, and because we don't want people reoffending, correct? Right. We do not want reoffenses. We don't want offenses. But I think this is such a, an emotional topic for people. It involves children. It involves, you know, sometimes violence. And um, 
I think it's wonderful what you're doing because I think we need to have more conversations surrounding um, sex offenses and healing, you know, healing um, people and families, which that was probably, that is still to this day, one of the most important um, um, parts of my job that I love because I've seen that healing process, you know, can occur with families and with people um, and it's a beautiful thing when it can happen. It doesn't always happen. There are some people that do horrendous things um, and they don't want to change. They do not want to better themselves. But I think this is just an emotional um, topic, I would say, yes. um, for people. Yes, and I'm definitely experiencing um, the, 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 the kickback and the emotion every time I try to present this topic. Because as you said, which we all agree with, of course, we want, we don't want the offence to happen in the first place. Mm -hmm. But when somebody's convicted of committing this crime, um, we also do not want them to ever commit it again. Yeah. Now, of course, the biggest response that I get on most of my platforms, and each one, interestingly, behaves a little differently, is the way to stop an offender reoffending again is just to kill them. And that is the that's the most common response that I get, in particular on TikTok. It's a ruthless platform, TikTok is. But on my LinkedIn page and my Twitter page, the conversation is slightly different. Facebook is very emotive as well. So they're all behaving slightly differently. Instagram has a slightly different conversation coming. Because, of course, we know that the death sentence isn't a punishment that's given for this crime. We know that. So unless we're going to go out there and campaign for that, I feel like just saying it all the time is a very frustrating waste of time, right? So let's look at other ways that we can stop that person from reoffending again. The next conversation, put them in prison forever. Now, actually, a couple of weeks ago on um, the news, the national TV, I should say, here in England, there was a lawyer and a campaigner that had a little debate on a breakfast show. And the lawyer very interestingly said, there in England, there are 100,000 sex offenders on the register. To put them all in jail is impossible because our prison capacity is 85,000, right? And it's already full. So to lock them up and throw away the key is also not an option. So, so where's the conversation gonna go to next? How are we going to encourage these people to not reoffend? Like, what was your work with sex offenders like in that 25 years? Can you give us a bit of an insight? Sure, absolutely. Um, most of the, some of the guys came straight out um, from sentencing to probation supervision. Most of uh, the guys, of the offenders came, they did some sort of prison sentence, whether it was five years in prison, 10 years in prison. Now, historically, I have to say, when I first started in this um, career people would get, and this was just obviously in my jurisdiction, my county, they would get a standard 10 years in prison and they would come out on lifetime probation supervision. Okay. Um, that has kind of dwindled in recent years. Um, and we can make the argument whether that's good or bad. In my experience, um, meeting and supervising thousands of sexual offenders, I happen to believe the ones that um, came out of prison. Now we have a prison here that actually starts therapy and treatment in prison. And those offenders that came out that had had some therapy and treatment and were in prison were probably some of the best prepared offenders to get their life back on track. 
that they took this seriously. They did not want to reoffend. They wanted to get better as opposed to, I noticed, again, this is not a scientific, um, mm. you know, experience, but this is just my experience mm. working with this population. The offenders that came straight out of sentencing with little to absolutely no jail time, no therapy, no treatment, were probably much more entitled. They were not prepared um, to change their behavior, change their life. They just weren't. So I guess take that for what it's worth, um, whether it's a combination of maybe some incarceration time treatment, um, I believe does work for many people, the ones that want it to to work. Right. Um, so that's just kind of a little bit of the sentencing structures here. And, and, and what I found those offenders were, and then, but we also have to take into account maybe their, their deviancy level too, Jeremy. So some, some offenders do not have, they may commit a sex crime, but they are not what's called paraphilic or sexually deviant. So if you want me to get into that just briefly, okay. Um, some offenders that are, you know, diagnosed by a therapist or a doctor, they'll take assessments where um, they have a sexual deviancy that they have to manage for the rest of their life. So they may be born or develop a sexual attraction to prepubescent children. That would be sexually deviant because I don't believe anybody in this, well, on the right mind would believe it's okay to have sex with young children. Yes. But there are people that they have to fight that urge, right? They have to fight that. That is something they have to wake up every day and choose to manage. And I want to say this is not the vast majority of sexual offenders that have this, but the ones that do, it could be exposures. Um, you can be an exhibitionist um, that has to manage that sexual deviance. So you cannot expose yourself. And some people will laugh about that offense, but it's actually quite serious. Um, studies have shown that most um, rapists start as exposure so it's not really like you know a fun it's it should be it's a serious crime wow right? so it really just depends on was this a crime of opportunity that you know if someone had sex with say a 16 year old mm. um it psychologists will tell us it is normal for grown men to be attracted to say the the 15 16 17 year old females now it's not okay to act on that um but it's because they may look like adult women. Right. So that that's not, you know, a deviant sexual interest if you're unless, you know what I mean? So yes. I know I'm kind of going off on my No, no, I love it. Love it. Keep going, please. But, okay. So that that's important to note that offenders who may have sex with teenage girls, of course it is wrong. It is a it is a boundary violation. It is it is um something that is not appropriate and in many countries, states, um, it's illegal. And you should be, but that's not like a, that's not someone who may be um, sexually deviant. They would prefer adult women. They have normal relationships with adult um, females or, you know, males. Um, but it's really what I would say is most important um, to kind of figure out when you're either managing offenders or supervising offenders or um, when we talk about sexual offending, it's really trying to identify who has these sexual deviancies that we have to be watching and focusing and I know it might sound you know crazy to some in your audience but you want to support them and what that means is um this the family support and therapist support these people have to be able to talk about what they're mm -hmm. thinking 
what they're feeling, what is on their mind. Mm. So we, so they don't reoffend because if, right. if they're isolated, if they are not given the treatment, that is when they go down that path, right? They go online, they'll, they'll, they'll look for um, potential victims. That's mm. that's when that occurs. So it's really understanding who the sexually, um, who has the sexual deviancy mm. and who may not. Okay. So then we start to think about a spectrum of offenders, right? So yeah. we have <clears throat> the offender who has um, uh, a real sexual deviancy and has been offending for decades and has been caught and how has served his prison sentence and is released. But on the other side of the spectrum, you have a young man who exposed themselves once and that's their crime we the sexual deviancy is is um different for those two people so we should treat them their rehabilitation or the the treatment of them should also be different um or or, or uh, I'm, I'm just trying to i'm just trying to think about what people will be feeling right now it's like our view towards those two criminals should be different. They're still criminals, right? But they're at different ends of the spectrum, even though they've both committed a sexual crime. Yes. Yes, exactly. And and then how is their rehabilitation in the community going? So um, the treatment program, because they committed a crime, they created a victim. Their treatment may be the same. Um, but how are they then managing themselves in the community? And that's where supervision comes in. That's why supervision is so important. Um, and then, you know, we do have lifetime probation here in the state of Arizona where I'm from. I don't, I don't think every state does or every country may. And um, we do have a, a pathway off uh, lifetime probation. We do have something that's called early termination. And, um, but really there needs to be, um, some time that goes you know into um longevity right so when someone's going to change their behavior you have to have a certain amount of time to say you know what this person's passing polygraphs this person is holding down a job this person is um they we do ask a lot about um someone's masturbation practices on okay. supervision and okay. that is really that's really important to know um what their sexual fantasies are and you know making sure they're not reinforcing any sexually deviant thoughts that they may have so that's important to wow. talk about probation treatment now when someone successfully graduates from treatment the question then becomes is they'll they'll be on probation still can they manage themselves in the community without treatment have they internalized treatment can they use those um, cope the, the the good coping skills that they learned from treatment to manage themselves. Mm. So so everyone has an offense cycle. Offenders have offense cycles that they learn about in treatment, and so that may start with, um, you know, a victim posturing where you know, say you lose your job or say you uh, break up with someone, say someone wrongs you. Well, um, most of us will think, you know, I had a bad day or this is a hard time and you know, we lean on family and friends, we um, maybe go on vacation, there's healthy ways to cope with these things that make us feel really sad. 
Well, offenders may go into victim posture and they will then go down this path of, I'm going to look at pornography. Like, so I'm going to isolate, I'm going to go online. I'm going to look at, um, now looking at pornography for them is an unhealthy coping mechanism. They're not looking, they're not being honest with their support system, um, their mothers or fathers or wives or friends saying, I'm really sad right now. They will go online or look at pornography or maybe child pornography, um, or go start chatting online, maybe using prostitutes, things that are unhealthy behaviors okay. for someone who may offend, or in this case of their own supervision, reoffend. Mm. So if they've been in treatment, they should know that a death, a loss, a, uh, a loss of a job, they should um, learn at this point what they need to do to manage themselves. So they're not going online chatting with potential minors or looking at pornography to help them cope. Mm. So they need to like on supervision. So post-treatment can um, they manage themselves um, properly in the community prior to them early terminating from probation when the court says, okay, we can trust you now to manage yourself and not create new victims that's what a court here would be looking for if they were going to early terminate someone okay so during this this treatment cycle we are trying to give we are educating informing and training that offender to recognize when they are using an unhealthy outlet in reaction to something that's happened in their personal life and if they can recognize that they are that they've experienced that something's gone on in their personal life that sent them on a quick route of destruction um a uh, path of destruction they feel tempted to open up that pornography they feel tempted to go after this or go after that we're trying to train them to recognize those behaviors and not actually carry them out because that is an unhealthy route for that type of person Correct. And say, but say, yes. And say, but say you are dealing with someone that has a paraphilic behavior or a sexual What is that word? What is that word? Para... Paraphi- paraphilic. What so, is that? So it means um, uh, para and then philia. It's like sexual deviancy. So not normal, be- not normal sexual behavior. So, and I always, when I'm in trainings, I, I, I teach people don't, don't think of it as, you know, grown adults, who are engaging in adult sexual behaviors, right? So if you're in a relationship with a man or a woman, and let's say you want to look at pornography, that's not really what this is. We're not, you know, I mean, anyone can have their judgments on that, but that's not what this, that, that is like how I go back to, it's not okay to expose your penis in front of children, or it's not okay uh, to have sex with children. Those are kind of, um, that's what like a sexual deviancy in this case uh in sex offender management we would say um so there could be um there is i think several pedophilia i mean this word gets tossed around a lot but that's an actual diagnosis not someone that has sex with child doesn't it doesn't mean they are a pedophile they might have pedophilic interests um, but like pedophilia, you have to be diagnosed by a psychologist as that's your primary sexual interest is prepubescent children. 
Right. So that's what I mean by paraphilia. So, so back to your treatment question, if someone is paraphilic, it's even more important for them to understand their offense cycle. And when they start getting into a mood state that is very um, leading them, could potentially lead them down a path that is destructive for them where they are going to hurt someone else, you know, hurt someone else, reoffend. They have to stop themselves. And that's what treatment, one of the things, I mean, treatment is, is amazing. And it, there's so much to go into there, but that's one thing. Um, one com component of treatment is understanding what that looks like for you, for any offender. But any of us can get right into a bad mood state. It's just, we don't go out and hurt people. Right. So, it, but, but this person has, and so they learn what that looks like for them and what they need to do to make sure they don't go down a path that is going to hurt someone else and really hurt themselves because they'll go back to prison. Right. You know? Mm. Yeah. Okay. I just would love to get into this terminology quickly again, because I know actually through being called out a couple of times that I am using the incorrect terminology terminology so a pedophile is somebody who has committed an offense to a pre a sexual offense to a prepubescent child is that correct it is someone who this is usually done by assessments so a psych they'll go see a psychologist and and because they don't even have to be convicted you could have people who are pedophiles that have never been convicted yet right they haven't been caught Right. So these are people that are diagnosed by a psychologist as someone whose primary sexual interest is in children. Okay. But not everyone who has sex say with a child is technically they'd have to be assessed is what I'm saying. Right. Because you could have somebody who has sex with a child but is it's not his their primary yes. um attraction, right? So, so then we're saying anyone, um, but what about is this? So, so, so that's the the paedophile definition for prepubescent children. But what about postpubescent children? What's their label? So the term there would be hebophile. Okay. Okay, and so, but not everyone that again commits a crime against a post-pubescent child is a hebophile but there are people whose primary sexual interest that is their preference right so again finding out through assessments through their treatment providers they need to know that um they need to be um aware of that and they need treatment to understand because it is hard um for offenders to understand that about themselves right mm -hmm. that they have they they sometimes start and live in denial sometimes, right? We don't want to believe the worst things about ourselves, or we don't want to, um, we don't want, so they, they need to work with their treatment provider to understand what their sexual issues or if they have any deviancies. So that would be um, a, someone who's a hebophile, but again, not everybody um, who does that is a hebophile, but there are people who that is their primary sexual interest Okay. are the, the teenage or post-pubescent um, teens. 
Okay, so the the word paedophile comes with a with a charged emotion, and um, so I was under the impression just before you thankfully educated me in this that anyone who um, has an interest in post pubescent children that are still under age we label them as sex offender. That's what I thought, but let's just take these two terms: paedophile term and the sex offender term. From my understanding, the, the, the word paedophile is hugely charged with extreme anger and the word sex offender, not so much so, right? Um, now, coming from the offenders, these terms and these labels that are hugely charged emotive, emotively, I can only imagine that it's keeping a percentage of them quiet about what they've got in their head because they don't want to be seen by society in this way. And for them to keep quiet about what they've got in their head and battle it on their own is a higher chance of them giving into the temptation one day when they've had a bad day or something has gone bad in their personal life. And that is a danger. Whereas if we had a society that was a bit more open about this, where people could come forward, there was a centre where they could go if they recognised and could speak to trusted professionals about what they've got in their head, that could be a good way to prevent them from ever committing the crime. Would you say that this is, um, I'm talking some sense? Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. You are, Jeremy. I mean, and there have been a number of people that I have met with that have said, I wish... I wish I had somewhere to go. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know who to talk to about um, what was going on in my head. Um, they knew it wasn't normal. They knew it wasn't okay, but they were, you know, scared. Um, and they don't, they don't know where to go. Who, who they didn't know where to go. Okay. So if they were able to potentially. There was, um, you know, a safe space for them to discuss their feelings and get the therapy. It is a good question. Could that prevent offenses from occurring? Okay. Now, for anybody that is listening to this, that is now starting to feel angry because it feels like this conversation is going down the route of having a level of empathy to the people that commit these crimes and people who would possibly respond to our conversation and say, um, you're showing sympathy for them. Why are you supporting them? They are pure evil. Um, this is you're trying to normalize the crime. What would your initial response be to those people? Well, I would say I would never normalize um, sex sexual offenses. So never. It's it's not normal and it's not it's not okay. Mm. Um, I have also um, with again the thousands of sexual offenders I've worked with. Um, they know this from treatment and with supervision, they will never live a normal life. And once they start going down the path of, I want to be normal, that is that should be a red flag um, to them. Okay. So um, when we talk about empathy, I mean, I think I am an empath. I, I do empathize with people who struggle with this. Is that something any of us would want to have right. to, right. that is, it's a, um, it's not, I understand it's not anything any of us would wish to live with mm. or have one of our loved ones live with, right. the, you know, it's just not. And um, so any, these are serious struggles, serious issues, but at the same time, 
Um, no, the death penalty is not something that, you know, we do in society for these offenses, nor really should it be for the vast majority of these offenses. People, um, we want people, all people, to, I think, be productive members of society if they can, correct? And the other thing I would say, um, throughout the course of my career, um, I've arrested um, thousands of offenders, right? So on supervision, if someone's seriously violating probation or um, leading themselves down a path of reoffending, filing that petition to revoke their probation grant, arresting them, you know, I've, I've signed thousands of those warrants for people's arrest. I have recommended people go back to prison. I don't believe that everybody wants to change. Those people should be identified because I don't believe they should ever have the right to hurt somebody again. And our court system should recognize when somebody is a repeat offender, someone that has had the opportunity, they've gone to prison, they've gone out on supervision, they have had the opportunity for treatment, but they will not change those people, I would argue, should not have the right to live right. in our society. Okay. And those are the that so so I I have again I have I've been told I mean I go to prison sometimes and um I know a lot of the guys in there and and you know some of them have actually thanked me for putting them in prison okay. um and because they knew it was the right thing um for us to do at probation they, they knew they were on a pathway to potentially hurting someone and that is why supervision is so important and we need good supervision in, in, in our counties and our states and across the country, we need good supervision and people who know when someone is not getting better, someone who is a risk, someone who's a high risk, someone who has the sexual deviancy and they are refusing to get better. Mm. So I, I hope that helps your viewers understand mm. that um, we have to identify who the highest risk offenders are and who are the ones that do not want to change their lives and they want to continue to re-victimize people and those are the people that should be in prison yes okay and then again very nicely we come to this idea that there is a spectrum here yes. we're not dealing with one type of person because i feel that the conversation around this is based on the prolific offenders that have been offending for decades, the high profile cases that you see on the news. And we think that every offender is like that and that they cannot be helped and they cannot be productive member of society ever again. Um, when we're not dealing with that, we're dealing with a spectrum of offenders and we have to deal with this, with the spectrum of offenders because we can't put them all in prison forever. Now, so a question I always thought was very interesting was, um, with the whole conversation around they should serve their life in prison, I would like to ask those people, if your son of 19 years old met up with a 15-year-old and did something with her and it was their first offence, would you want your son locked up in prison for the rest of his life? I don't think any mother's answer to that would be yes. I really don't. I think they would then see when it's brought into their own home with their own loved ones um, that there needs to be, the solution is not to put people in prison for their whole life. Of course, I'm not I'm not saying that, that a 19-year-old meeting a 15-year-old is okay. 
I'm not saying that at all. It's just dealing with the offence um, like we deal with all other offences, you know. Um, also, I, I, I sometimes think about if your husband that you truly love um, had made a mistake or made a mistake, had given into the temptation of watching something that they shouldn't have online, and it was their first ever offence. Would you want your husband locked away in prison for life? I just think if we can turn that question around to the person to bring it a bit more closer to home, then maybe we can um, encourage this conversation around the spectrum. Um, so I think there's a long way to go. I would love to ask you, what was this conversation like 25 years ago, by the way? Was it like, I mean, it's horrendous now. So what was it like then? Well, we didn't have the internet, right? Okay. <laughs> so I don't think we had conversations and certainly mm. not the the internet aspect, mm. which, you know, the internet we know is good and it's bad. I mean, yes. we, can reach, we can reach people. You and I are having this conversation and um, that's, and that's wonderful. But I think back, um, I, I think the, the secrecy though, too, I, I don't know if our media does a good job. I know sometimes the the splash in the headlines. I always like to dig deeper. I like to look at does this was this person um, on supervision at the time they committed this crime. Our media doesn't really give us in depth. Were, do they have a criminal record? Um, tell me more because there's always more. So I like to just you know dig a little deeper when the media gives us a splash right of of the the headline. Right. But I think that the internet has changed um some but i just the the internet also sometimes doesn't allow us to have these good conversations like you and i are having if mm -hmm. someone just throws up a quick comment um but i would like to see us understand each other more and understand mm -hmm. this topic and um especially this topic that i'm passionate about mm -hmm. um more we should be doing more of this absolutely and working towards the offense ever happening in the first place or continuing to happen like that's the goal and again for anybody that's listening or watching that was abused in their childhood I want to ask you if the person that abused you was somebody that would have seeked help if it was available to them would you have wanted it available to them I'm going to guess the answer is yes. And I'm not saying that if they seeked help, it meant they would have left you alone. I'm not saying that. But if it brought them 1% closer to the chance that they wouldn't have abused you when they came to you, because they had they had somewhere where they could go and they were somebody, they were one of these offenders on the spectrum where we're saying that they would seek help if it was available, would you want them to have seeked help? And I'm going to say anyone that's had a, experience of abuse in their childhood by some by an offender would have wanted that offender to have had therapy and had help before they got to them and again if you just turn it around and, and put it in our own court i just feel like this whole the problem is is, is saying support or help or working with is as soon as you say those words it it, it creates a problem because nobody wants to be seen to be helping or supporting these people. So I say working with these people, 
you know, we've got to work with these people to make sure they don't repeat the offence. And just to say they're, they're pure evil and they'll always reoffend. Well, what that's, that's our solution. <laughs> you know, that that's, that's what we're just going to go with now and just continue seeing children hurt continuously. It, it, we need to have a better conversation around this. Um, so 25 years you worked with sex offenders. And by the way, it's um, definitely something that I would like to also explore in the future um, to 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 get the opportunity to interview offenders and see where, where they're coming from and what's in their head. I'd love that. Um, you decided to create a consultancy business and start working with victims and their families. Is that right? Yes, and I and 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 I do want to say yes. It was almost twenty five years I retired. Um, most 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 of my career was with sexual offenders, um, victims of sex crimes. We we worked with them as well when oh, I was okay. with probation. Um, but there's a lot of victims. Um, well, here's what happens when many offenders will go to prison for five or ten years, and it is not. Um, unique for victims of sex crimes to just want to get on with their life and really not follow their abuser and opt in. We have victims rights here and 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 victims who can opt in to kind of follow what's going with, you know, going on with supervision. The vast majority of victims don't um didn't want to do that. Um, but, but the ones that did, you know, we we worked closely with to make sure there's certain things you can't disclose, but but things that you're required by law to talk about and really just um, be there to listen as well to, to their concerns. So in consulting, yes. So I now um, can work with, again, both offenders and their families going through the system and then also um, victims of, of offenses. But a lot of times victims do not want, they just kind of, don't want to be a part of that justice system. Mm. They just don't, if that mm. makes sense. Mm. Um, and then we think we can understand why. And then and then some do. So um it, it's it's unique to each each victim. And the traumatic process of going through the justice system is not just with the victim, right? It's with the family, it's with the parents often. And that's a I believe it's a it's a it's a complex situation in itself. I mean, of course, I experienced the way that my my experience has affected the people around me, my mother, my father, my siblings, my friends. Um, so working with them must be very complex because the emotions charged uh, with being a mother or father to a child that's been abused. I mean, it's ripping parents lives apart, right? Yes, absolutely. And I have a couple of close friends of mine that are some of the best um, therapists and they are, they, they specialize in victim treatment and, um, and, and we don't talk about victim treatment enough and it's a very specialized treatment. So, so sometimes when victims will say, oh, I'm in therapy or, you know, I want to get therapy for my child who's um, been impacted by, you know, sexual assault. I really like to make sure they're with someone who specializes in treating victims of these crimes because it is a specialized field. 
and it's just the same as an offender, you want to make sure their therapists are trained in sex offenses. Mm -hmm. You do not want a therapist to to dismiss this as um, sex addiction because sex offending is not sex addiction. So there's a cup. So you want offenders with therapists who understand sex crimes and sex offending. And you want victims who understand uh, how to heal victims impacted by offenses. And, um, and so I do. So, and I'd love for you to talk with, with them as well. And I think on my YouTube channel, we talked to uh, Missy and I do, she treats victims and are also um, our friend Lorena and they just, they're just wonderful um, healing, healing victims and the work that they do um, is just wonderful. And, and clarification work is what that can be called. Um, and, and, you know, when you have children who are offended, a lot of times they may be angry at the adults in their lives that they feel we understand the offender did what they did and they are solely responsible for their behavior, their yes. choices. But sometimes there are people and victims who have to, they struggle with um, their parents as well. Mm. And so the therapists I work with really do work on clarifying. You're a child, right? Many of these people are their children. They were innocent. They, they, they are innocent people in all of this. And, um, and so they just do amazing work, clarification work, and just really healing um, victims um, that are impacted by these crimes. Okay, and can we talk about the word healing? Because I um, have often felt a resistance to that word because I feel like it implies that you can be fully mended, that you can be fully fixed. And I don't ever believe that's the case with anything that caused you trauma in your childhood, whatever that be, even if it was your toy got broken and it never got repaired and that caused you some trauma when you were four years old like any level it's like they you carry these scars like we're human beings that's what life is right we we are carrying scars all of us um so I always felt like the word heal like a healing practice or um feeling healed or aiming for healing I always felt like it's a false promise because you can never actually achieve that because you cannot go back in time um, but I also understand that the the term is very comforting and, and very hopeful. Um, I just wondered if you had anything to say about that. Because uh, before and before I pass it over, I'm pretty sure that, you know, your colleagues that you've just discussed here, which I'd love to also speak with, by the way, um, maybe they would say that it's not about achieving full he healing. Of course, you can never achieve that. It's about aiming towards something that's hopeful. No, I love I love the way you put that, Jeremy. It's so beautiful. And you know, I, I definitely would um, you know, they are the experts. I would defer to them on that. But what I have noticed just um talking with and working with, you know, um victims also make a transformation, you know, from when they first start treatment to then maybe even years later. And I can talk to them and I just see that transformation process where mm -hmm um they they will never be okay with what happened mm. to them right that's not you're not okay with it um you've learned things right we've learned it's not impacting maybe your daily life in the way that it had mm. um, um no one wants to go through life every day angry right angry and 
I think so healing some of the, the anger inside of us understanding. Um, and so that's why I just, I feel these therapists are just, they're just so amazing because the transformation, I guess that, that people make in their, in their treatment classes, um, in their private sessions with the therapist, I see, I see a transformation in them and it's so beautiful. You know, mm. it really is. That's incredible. That is, you know, that's so incredible. On the last three events that I've spoken at, by the way, um, adult events, I've had three people come up to me, one on each occasion, and disclose for the first time, right? Um, two ladies in their 50s and one man in his 60s. So let's just talk about this man in his 60s. My goodness, it was such a powerful moment. Um, he came up to me um, and he was, you could see it's almost like I could see his nerves and his fear um, because it, it, I could see myself in him when I first disclosed and the body language really told it. And he just came up to me and he said, look, that was great presentation. And after hearing your story, um, I just felt compelled to come and tell you same thing happened to me. And I never told anybody about it. You're the first person I've ever told. I'm 63. I went through my, in my twenties, I went through some chaotic points. I was angry. I was frustrated. Um, and I acted it out in various ways in my behavior, but then I settled down and, you know, I've just parked it and, you know, it's all good. It happened. The person who did it to me has now, is now dead. And I just wanted to tell, tell you that now, then I'm obviously giving them the 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 best reaction that I possibly can uh, uh, suited to the situation. We chat for a couple more minutes. And when they shake my hand and say, thank you, the transformation in that five minutes is just phenomenal. Now they've got a bit of a smile. They feel brave. You can see their body posture has changed. Like there's a bravery about it. And then they go off and they go off to their life and it, it continues as, as it did. And so I understand what you're saying about this transformation. And like you say, working with professionals from the first ever time you disclose to possibly reporting it, to telling your family, to, to acknowledging it yourself and learning how to live with it. And, you know, trying to heal the anger, like that's a true transformation and it's phenomenal. And then you make me think about the transformation that we would hope to see in offenders in the same way, in the same way, they acknowledge something is incorrect. Maybe they've offended already. And now they're going to work towards not offending again. And just before I pass it over, we know that that is not all the offenders. We know there are good percentage of offenders that just don't care and they will continue offending. They don't care if they're in and out of prison. They don't care. They talk with people who think like Joe can laugh about this. We know that there's that type of offender, but we also know that there are some offenders we are going to be able to transform so that they never offend again. And that is the number one goal. Yes, absolutely. That is the number one goal. Um, is no more victims and healing the next generation, right? Making the, I should say, making the next generation better, um, healthier, right? And talking about this um, will, I think, make the next generation um, mm. better and yeah. probably and less impacted by sexual offending. And I think that's 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 what we all want. Yes, absolutely. 
Do you ever get any kickback? Did you ever get any kickback in particular when you were focusing working in prisons with sex offenders? I'm pretty sure you had a thousand times people saying, oh, why do you want to work with them? And, and did you have any general kickback? You know, always. I mean, that was a question I often got. Why do you, why do you work with that population? Why do you want to work with, you know, with, with those offenders? And I thought, you know, I, I, would, I would often say, I mean, I liked the challenge um of working with that population i liked the um the psychology behind this is fascinating to me mm. um but i also wanted to be a part of either really helping someone change and not ever reoffend again which i feel like is a gift My. to society when you're working in in law enforcement you're working in that field if you can help someone never offend again how what a what a gift I could give my community and my society and my, my community and my and and I felt that and I believe that and um it is difficult work I I commend officers that that work um in this field um at the same time um also work with with victims and families and helping people understand um this this population much better so it's it was challenging it it is challenging but i i just think that um overwhelmingly if i can help someone never reoffend again i i want to do that i want i want to do that my goodness it's so powerful you know it's so and, powerful and like i said earlier jeremy and and the other thing is either you're going to get better or we got to, you know, file that PTR when I was back with law enforcement and, and put you back in prison if you're not going to change. And I, you know, so it went, it kind of went both ways, you know, either really helping people um, not offend again. And then if, if not, yeah, you're going to go back before the court and the judge and tell them why you can't do that. And, and you'll probably go to prison. Okay. So that is, is, is such a great point. So working with offenders well, for anybody that's saying, why would you ever want to do that? Well, there's a reason. Because we're either going to try to get them to not reoffend, and we're going to work with them, but we're going to, in that process, it's also going to be highlighted to us whether these people need to go back inside because they are not going to change. So regardless of what the outcome is, side A or side B, we work towards, it's working towards prevention, working with sex offenders is working towards prevention period because we either help them transform and if they're not willing to transform they get resentenced yes so it's a win-win it's a win-win situation yes and that's how i see it jeremy yeah and, and it's a great point i don't think you can debate that i don't think that's uh, you know it's undeniable that that the, the point you made there is is so strong and What's interesting is I've been doing this now full time for four years. I'm in my fifth year of, of of working in these circles. And I swear for, you know what, for every thousand organizations that I come across that are victim focused, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, of course, that is necessary. But for every thousand, I come across one, which is offender focused. And I feel like that is not the correct waiting you know, of our time. Like, of course, we we must incredibly support the people that have been through these horrific crimes. But if we, but actually in an ideal world, 
those system that support would not be needed. What we're trying to do is we're trying to get rid of all the victim focused charities. Like we want to live in a world where there's no need for them anymore. You, you know, so we want to do them out of business. That's actually what we want. Yes, absolutely. And the one thing too, um, Jimmy, I often tell people is victims and offenders really do, they, they want the same things. They, they do, because I can talk to both sides. They want accountability. They want fairness. They want justice. That's, that, that's, that's proper. Mm. And they don't want anybody re-offended again. They don't. And so if we can somehow bridge these gaps and work together um, and educate and, and, you know, I've worked with a lot of families where incest is, is, has right. been a generational from generation to generation passed on and, and that family being in therapy and what these therapists can do with, with these families, again, more transformation, you have offenders, but you also have victims all in the same family. Mm, and wow. um, every, everyone yeah it's it's very um uh it's it's that those families have to do a lot of work to to come together and try to transform so then the next generation in their family mm. is not impacted by sexual abuse wow. and like i said the the therapists that i've worked with over the years i just i can't give them more kudos and credit for the amazing work that they that they've done and these families impacted by incest um that is so hard to talk about oh. right that is if your family is a family that's been impacted by generational mm. sexual abuse by whether it's grandfather uncle or mm. brother you know just that's what happens they all come together when it's finally someone's in the justice system and and um and they want to change their family. And wow. it's just powerful to watch that occur. Wow. So, so fascinating and incredible and great information. Um, so Beth, we coming up to the hour now. Um, it's gone so quickly. And um this this conversation is full of information and insight. So I really appreciate that. Please can you tell everyone where they can find you, please? Yes, I'm on Instagram. BHG Consulting Group is my Instagram. Missy, who's a therapist, a friend of mine, we do Beth and Missy Talk on YouTube. I My website for my company is uh, www.bhgconsultinggroup.com. You can message me, message me there or on Instagram and also on our YouTube channel, Beth and Missy Talk. Thank you so much. And I encourage any everyone that's listening or watching to go and check out those links. We will put, put them also in the show notes. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on this conversation. If you felt like it was challenging, of course it is. We're trying to advance this conversation with every uh, episode that we release. Please share it around your friends, share it around your family, get the conversation going. We're releasing this on YouTube and in audio format now because we're beginning to build this project step by step. Thank you so much for joining and I look forward to the next episode.